Hello, party people. It's Liz Haftel here again with another episode of Clumsy and Confused. And today, I'm here with our lovely special guest. He is blonde and fluffy. The one, the only, Sir Alan Drake Haftel is here. Alan, say hello to the people. He's sniffing the microphone. That's how he's saying hello to you. All 11 pounds of him. He's bulking up. He's put on, you know, some weight in COVID, um, eating extra ice cream snacks. But uh, he is here and he is going to be our co-host of the week. Okay, Alan, are you ready to start our conversation for this week? Um, so here's the thing. I do not consider my expert in anything in the whole entire world. I am very, very me- mediocre at a lot of things. Um, but today I'm going to be discussing something that I do happen to know a good amount about. Um, today I'm going to discuss diabetes. Guys, we hear about diabetes all of the time, everywhere. We know that Pawnee, Indiana has the first case of super diabetes. I'm sorry, I'm overly obsessed with parks and recreation, but had to mention it. So I just so happen to be a certified diabetes educator, which actually just changed its certification name to Certified Diabetes Care and Education Specialist. So I used to call myself a CDE, but I guess now I'm a CDCES. Um, very, very complicated. And so, um, in order for me to become a diabetes educator, I had to put in a lot of time and effort. I had to provide over a thousand hours of direct patient care in diabetes, as well as take a certification exam, which I'm going to be honest, it was the hardest test I have ever taken in my life. Um, by far so much harder than my licensing exam to become a pharmacist, but you know, I guess they make them so that not everyone can take them. I have no idea. But I passed somehow. Um, And by becoming a CDCES, I'm able to provide patients at my clinic with diabetes education. And I'm able to bill for services um, to insurance companies, including Medicare and Medicaid, with that certification. And so here's the problem that people don't understand with diabetes. Diabetes is a serious, very serious medical condition, and when a patient is diagnosed with diabetes, it actually changes every single aspect of their life. So we're going to spend some time today just understanding the basics of diabetes. Even though I'm a pharmacist, I'm not going to get into medication therapy. If we're interested in that, potentially we could talk about um, anti-diabetic agents in a future episode, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We are here to talk about what diabetes is, and why it's a problem. So what's the big deal? What's the big picture? Why is diabetes such an issue, and why do we need to know about it? So unfortunately, more than 34 million people in the United States actually have diabetes, and the, the that's a lot of people, okay? But the biggest problem is that one in five of them don't even know that they have it. And more than 88 million um, adults in the United States have prediabetes, and 84% of those people don't know it. So there's a lot of people walking around who have diabetes and prediabetes, and we'll go over the differences between those. There's a lot of people walking around who don't even realize that they have a problem, and that is a problem. Diabetes is the seventh leading cause of death in the United States, and you know what? That could potentially be underreported because 
you know, a lot of people don't know that they have diabetes. So how are we supposed to know if they die from a complication of diabetes if we don't even know that they have the, the condition? And type 2 diabetes accounts for approximately 90 to 90% of all diagnosed cases of diabetes. And then type 1 diabetes accounts for that other 5 to 10%. So we're going to talk about the difference between type 1 and type 2, but it's important to know that there are two different types of diabetes that we're going to talk about today. And one last statistic for you, I'm not just going to read stats to you this whole time, but one huge statistic is um, in the last 20 years, the number of adults diagnosed with diabetes has more than doubled as the American population has aged. Um, And so with all of these baby boomers and people are living for longer, more people are being diagnosed with diabetes and also because of the obesity epidemic in the United States. So um, we'll talk about lifestyle and how lifestyle contributes to diabetes. Um, But as our nation gets older and chubbier, um, we are going to see more and more people with diabetes and these numbers are going to go up even further. So when you say the phrase diabetes, I feel like everyone's mind automatically goes to sugar, which is true. Um, But let's talk about diabetes in very simple terms. What does it mean when somebody has diabetes? So Diabetes, explained, Liz terms. So you eat food, right? You eat food, it's digested in the stomach and your intestines. That food is broken down to a bunch of different constituents. One of those big ones is glucose, glucose, sugar, glucose, sugar. So the reason that your body breaks food down into glucose is because glucose is um, absorbed into your bloodstream. So that's how your body gets sugar is from digestion and absorbing glucose from your stomach in your, G- in your GI tract into your bloodstream. And we know that that glucose, that sugar, is utilized as energy everywhere in your body, mostly your muscle cells, but, um, you know, straight up sugar pre-digestion cannot be used for energy. We need that conversion to glucose and that absorption into the bloodstream in order to use glucose as energy. So, okay, the food has been digested. It's broken down into glucose. That glucose is in your bloodstream. How do those muscle cells, how do those cells utilize that glucose as energy? You know, it doesn't matter if it's just floating around there in the bloodstream. And we have to figure out a way for the body to utilize that glucose for cellular processes. So um, I found this really great analogy, and it says that every single cell, every muscle cell, every cell in your body basically has a door, which is a receptor, but it has a door that allows glucose to enter. When that, that glucose has to enter that cell in order to be utilized as energy. But that door, that receptor is locked until our friend insulin gets there. Insulin, you guys have probably heard of insulin. Um, If you've heard of diabetes, you've probably heard of insulin. But insulin is the key that is utilized to allow glucose into the cell. So insulin is the bouncer. Insulin is the key. Insulin is letting glucose into that cell. And your cell cannot get that energy. You cannot get that glucose. And insulin says, what's up? Come on in join the party, give us energy. So if insulin is there to let you in, the energy is in and the party can be started. I hope that that's a good analogy. I I really liked that analogy. So that's how it works for everybody. 
um, for me, you, an 85-year-old, we need insulin in order to utilize glucose. And the problem is, is that patients with diabetes, um, glucose is unable to get in that door. Glucose is stopped at the door because there is a lack of insulin or insulin resistance. And we'll talk about the different types of diabetes um, and, and we'll we will um, affiliate lack of insulin or insulin resistance with either type of um, diabetes. But the pro- overall, the problem is, is that the glucose can't get into the cells. So what does that mean? If the glucose is unable to get into the cells, where does that glucose stay? It stays right in your bloodstream. So what happens if there's extra glucose in your bloodstream that can't be used as fuel because there's no insulin to let it into the cells? That's when problems start. Too much sugar in that bloodstream, that's when we run into all of these problems throughout various organ systems in the body. And that's why people who have diabetes, they read that they have high blood glucose levels, right? So if you took a blood sugar level for someone with diabetes, it would be higher than a normal person because they have too much sugar actually in their blood because that sugar can't be utilized by the cells. It's stuck in the bloodstream. So diabetes results when you have too much blood sugar, um, too much sugar in your blood, too much blood sugar, I guess that's right too, but too much sugar in your blood all of the time. So your body is in an overall state of, they call it hyperglycemia, hyper, too much glycemia, sugar, too much sugar in your blood. Does that make sense? So, you know... There are a lot of ways that people can have too much sugar in your blood. Again, I talked about, you know, lack of insulin, lack of that key or insulin resistance. Um, But overall, you know, too much sugar in the blood, too much sugar floating around in your system, and a lot of problems can arise from this. So first, let's talk about type 1 diabetes. I mentioned before that type 1 diabetes only makes up about 5 to Five to 10%, I think, of the cases of diabetes in the United States. Um, so type 1 diabetes is actually an autoimmune condition. And when we, talk, when we say autoimmune, that means that your body, for some reason, genetic, whatever, um, your body is trigger, triggered to fight against itself. So autoimmune fighting against, immune system fighting against yourself. Um, And in the case of type 1 diabetes, your body mounts a response against the beta cells in your pancreas. So let's talk about the pancreas. Pancreas is an organ that people don't know a lot about, um, but the pancreas contains these beautiful cells called beta cells. And in Um, the pancreas with these beta cells, those beta cells are responsible for producing insulin. So when you think diabetes, I want you to think pancreas because your pancreas, the beta cells in your pancreas create an insulin. So in in type 1 diabetes with this autoimmune disease, um, your body actually mounts a response against those beta cells. So now your body is fighting against beta cells. What are those beta cells going to do? They're not going to be able to produce insulin anymore. So Type 1, autoimmune beta cell shutdown. So what happens if your beta cells shut down? That means you don't have any insulin. And that's one of the biggest problems 
one of the biggest. What am I talking about? That is a huge problem. Huge problem. If you don't have insulin, your body can't use any of the sugar that you're taking in from your diet or any of the sugar that your body is producing innately to turn into energy. So if you have no way to utilize sugar or utilize anything for energy, what's going to happen? Bad things. People feel like crap and um, your body has to resort to other energy sources um, to function, essentially. And so type 1 diabetes, I mean, type 1 and type 2 diabetes are very, very serious, like I said before, but type 1 is serious, 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 serious. Um, And the problem is, is that it presents itself as diabetic ketoacidosis. I don't know if anybody's heard of diabetic ketoacidosis before, Um, but basically what your body does, because you don't have any insulin to allow glucose to go into your cells for energy, your body starts to use fat, right? So keto, everyone is obsessed with the keto diet right now because it breaks down sugar. Great. That's great. It's really bad when that's the only when your body can't use sugar and the only thing it can utilize is fat as energy cells and that's what happens um, as energy for cells. I apologize. See guys, this is so appropriately named clumsy and confused because I am just so clumsy with my words. But anyways, um, so diabetic ketoacidosis. So your body can't use sugar for energy because you don't have any insulin to allow it into the cells. So it resorts to fat utilizing all of the fat that um, a patient, a type 1 diabetic has, that's fine, except when you utilize too much fat, it puts your body into a state of acidosis. And that's a problem. I'm not going to do a huge lecture on acids and bases, but just know that your body wants to be neutral. So acidosis, not good. So that's um, how we see a lot of patients present for the first time with type 1 diabetes. Patient doesn't know that they have type 1 diabetes. They're not giving themselves any um, supplemental insulin. So their body is running on fat, not sugar. Their blood sugar is high up through the roof. That doesn't feel good. And now, um, you know, their body is slowly going into a state of acidosis also not good. So um, diabetic ketoacidosis is a medical emergency and often 99.9% of the time um, requires hospitalization. So type 1 diabetes, serious. And we see type 1 diabetes occurring in younger people. I think the oldest person I've ever seen with new onset type 1 diabetes is like around 30-ish. Um, But usually, you know, it used to be called juvenile diabetes, but that's not true anymore because some people are diagnosed in their um, in their 20s. And I've seen up to age 30 again. But, you know, um, so it's not it's no longer like politically correct to call it juvenile diabetes. It's type one diabetes or autoimmune diabetes. And so the thing is with type 1 diabetes is that it never goes away. This is a lifelong condition. Um, and, you know, lifestyle changes are not the cause of type 1 diabetes. This is just caused by, you know, what a lot of medical things are caused by, just a flip of the switch in the wrong way. Um, it's a really unfortunate thing for people to go through. It's a really, really um, difficult medical condition. And, um, you know, all met, again, it's nothing that the person did. It's just, it's just who they are in their, um, in their genetics. 
And this diagnosis, again, is life-changing. It's life-changing for everybody involved. So it's life-changing for the person, obviously, but it's also life-changing for um, the family. And again, this is diagnosed a lot in younger kids. So for parents, this is a really tough thing for them to watch their kids go through. Um, but, you know, people live full lives with type 1 diabetes. They There's no um, de- like overall decrease in their life expectancy because of type 1 diabetes if they take care of themselves. So type 1 diabetes, it's, it's very important. Well, all diabetes is important for people to take care of themselves, but type 1 diabetes, it is a, it's a big deal and um, it, takes a, it takes a lot to manage. So and again, I mean, I see some patients who have type 1 diabetes in my clinic, but um, not a lot. Type 1 diabetics are usually managed by an endocrinologist because of the seriousness of their condition. Um, so 90 to 95% of patients are type 2 diabetics. Um, and, you know, type 2 diabetes is probably what everyone is is used to hearing about. It happens in older people. Um, but there are a lot of different risk factors that can lead to um, lead to a patient having type 2 diabetes. Some of them are controllable and some of them are not controllable. Um, so race, ethnicity, and family history have a lot to do um, with a patient's risk of having diabetes in their lifetime. Black, Hispanic, and Asian patients are genetically more likely to have diabetes. Baseline. Doesn't matter how healthy you are. Um, Unfortunately, those patient groups are more likely to um, to have diabetes. You know, and if a patient has other, we call them comorbid conditions, so other medical conditions, including high blood pressure and high cholesterol, those patients are also more likely to have um, to have diabetes. And then the big one that everyone always thinks about is obesity and lifestyle. So I'm not saying that only obese unhealthy people have type 2 diabetes because you can just be genetically inclined to develop diabetes in your lifestyle, in, in your lifestyle, in your lifetime. There are plenty of people who have who live a really healthy lifestyle who still have type 2 diabetes. Um, so, you know, we can't just look at someone and assume that they are diabetic or not diabetic. Um, but we do have an obesity epidemic in the United States. Um, and so obesity does contribute um, to diabetes. If you are, if you do have a higher risk of having diabetes in your lifetime. And that's why, um, we're seeing people who are, who are developing type two diabetes. We're seeing that age range get younger and younger and younger. Now we're actually seeing some adolescents who have type two diabetes. And that is because of the obesity, um, epidemic because of the obesity epidemic is affecting our adolescents and even some children. Some children are now um, at risk of developing type 2 diabetes very, very early in their lifetime. And this makes sense um, that patients who are obese are more likely to have diabetes because let's let's think about it. So we talked about how in diabetes you have an excess amount of sugar floating around in your bloodstream. So patients who are obese and who overeat, they're taking in extra sugar from their diet. So when you take in that extra sugar from your diet, we see the triggering of the pancreas beta cells that are like, okay, we're producing insulin. But if you eat more sugar, that triggers more insulin to be secreted. And your pancreas can only produce so much insulin at a time. So when you're a person who lives an unhealthy lifestyle and eats too much, eats too much sugar, you know, your pancreas cannot produce 
all of that insulin for years and years and years and years to cover all that extra sugar that people are eating. So what happens is that, you know, we see a lot of those beta cells in the person's pancreas start to burn out. They get tired. So now your body can't produce as much insulin. So what's going to happen? Your body doesn't have enough insulin to open those doors to let the sugar in your, in your cells. Um, you can develop diabetes and high blood sugars. So besides that beta cell burnout, I like to call it beta cell burnout, they're working so hard that those beta cells are working so hard to produce all of that insulin that they completely burn out. Um, another contributory, I can clearly say that word because I'm an intellect, contributor, I don't know. What am I talking about? Another thing that contributes <laughs> to the development of type 2 diabetes is actually insulin resistance. So what happens is, is that that pancreas, those beta cells, they're making all of this insulin, but now your body is like, bro, too much insulin all the time. I don't want this insulin anymore. So those keys, those insulin keys, they're not working on those cells anymore. So you have insulin floating around in your blood, but you still have all that glucose floating around in your blood. And nowhere for either of them to go. So now there's a party in the bloodstream, the insulin and the sugar is partying in the bloodstream with insulin resistance. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, if I was in class right now, I would make my students give me a thumbs up. So let's see. Alan, can you give me a thumbs up? He gave me a head nod. I think he understands insulin resistance. I lied. It wasn't a head nod. It was more of a tilt, but the ears went up. So I'm thinking, yes. Yes, he understands insulin resistance, people. This is the smartest dog in America. All right. So I hope that you kind of understand what type 2 1 diabetes, type 2 1, wow, I made up a new type of diabetes. I hope you understand um, how type 1 and type 2 diabetes differ. So again, you know, there's a lot to digest there. Um, so I hope I did a good job explaining it briefly. I just want to mention what gestational diabetes is. So gestational diabetes is actually pregnant, pregnant in pregnancy. Um, some women have problems controlling their blood sugar. Um, so gestational diabetes, diabetes, diabetes in pregnancy. So, um, when a woman is pregnant during one of her checkups, she will do, um, a glucose tolerance test to see how her body is processing sugar. Is it able um, to utilize that sugar for energy during pregnancy. Um, and, you know, oh, somebody's driving real fast by my house at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That was great. Thanks, Malden. Um, so in gestational diabetes, you know, that gl oral glucose tolerance test, any woman who has been pregnant is probably um, dry heaving right now as I say this. Um, but basically, it is just diabetes during pregnancy and it resolves itself after the baby is born. The um, woman may continue to to monitor her blood sugar after she gives birth just in case, you know, it, it potentially can, um, you know, turn into type 2 diabetes. But um, most women, it resolves upon giving birth. The problem with gestational diabetes is that any woman who has gestational diabetes during any of her pregnancies is actually at an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes in the future. So it's just something to look out for. And again, um, you know, all of these OBs, they do these glucose tolerance tests so women will be aware, keep their babies safe, and then they're, they'll also be aware to watch out for um, potential development of type 2 diabetes in the future. 
So again, one of the biggest things that I was discussing before is that people who have diabetes don't know how they have no don't know that they have diabetes. So how can somebody tell that they have diabetes? In a lot of patients um, with type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes is a whole another monster, and I'm not going to talk too much about that because I'm not an expert in, well, I'm not an expert in anything, but I know more about type 2 diabetes, so that's what I'm going to talk about here. But um, type 2 diabetes, there are some signs and symptoms that a patient's could, patient could experience, but in a lot of instances, again, people don't know that they have type 2 diabetes. If anything, they might um, complain of going to the bathroom more frequently or being more thirsty or potentially, you know, like um, having a headache or something like that. But there's not one tried and true symptom that is like, oh, this patient has type 2 diabetes because, you know, they twitch, their eye is twitching or something like that. There's no telltale sign. So the way that we tell, that we, um, see if a patient has diabetes is we take lab values. And one of the big lab values um, that we talk about is hemoglobin A1C. So hemoglobin A1C, or often affectionately called just A1C, and this is a measure of how much sugar is attached to your red blood cells. So you take a, somebody's blood sugar once, like a finger stick. I, I don't know if you guys have seen like um, patients take their own blood sugar, um, or they sometimes do it in doctor's office too. D- uh, they take a finger stick and they take a little sample of your blood and they can tell you what your blood sugar is. That's great, um, but it's just telling us what your blood sugar is right now. The beauty of a hemoglobin A1C is it measures how much sugar is attached to your red blood cells as an average of how much, su- like what your average blood sugar has been over the past three months. So, again, hemoglobin A1C average-ish blood sugar you've had for the past three months. And the reason it's three months is that um, three months is actually the life cycle of a red blood cell. So hemoglobin, red blood cell, hemoglobin, red blood cell, hemoglobin A1C, sugar attached to those red blood cells. Um, And so when the red blood cell dies off, so does that sugar. So it's great. It's amazing. Um, And again, it's more accurate than just getting a random blood sugar reading. So We have reference ranges for A1C to tell if a patient is normal, is a pre-diabetic. So when you're a pre-diabetic, we can't technically diagnose you with diabetes, but we like to tell patients that they are pre-diabetic because they are at an increased risk of having diabetes in the very near future. So um, we do... Uh, encourage lifestyle changes um, in patients who are pre-diabetic. And some patients do actually start taking anti-diabetic agents during that time that they are diagnosed as pre-diabetic. But it depends on the patient. But how many times can I have I said but? But, but, but. Um, (laughs) So A1C, if a patient has an A1C of 6.5% or greater, We are going to diagnose that person with diabetes. If they have an A1C of 5.7 to 6.4, that puts them in the pre-diabetes range. And a normal patient, a non-diabetic patient, is going to have an A1C of less than 5.7%. So when do people get tested for their A1C? I got tested at my, um, when I turned 30. But um, I think it depends. It definitely depends on the patient. If you have a family history of diabetes, they'll likely test you earlier. And again, it, this is why it's important to go to your yearly physicals as well, um, because they can order tests like this. But if you, um, you know, if you have a family history or if you have multiple risk factors, they'll start testing you much earlier. Most patients are tested. Um, 
for the first time between the ages of 30 or 40. So, um, yeah, ask your doctor, I guess, about an A1C test and if they think that you should get one. Why not, right? We love tests. As me and me and Alicia, Alicia, my BFF, we always say we love tests. We want as many tests as possible, full body scan at every single medical visit. Just kidding. That's medical cost waste, whatever. Still love a full body scan. So again, that A1C is the main thing that we look at. Also, you know, those blood sugar um, readings that I said with the, with the finger prick, those can be helpful as well. And a lot of patients who are diabetic, who are, you know, a little bit further into their diagnosis, they've had diabetes for a while or they are on certain anti-diabetic agents, they will do that blood sugar monitoring at home. But not every single patient who is diabetic has to do those blood sugar monitoring um, system, has to utilize those systems. But, um, you know, just know that that does exist. And that tells a patient their blood sugar right at that exact moment. So pretty awesome that patients can take that at home so that they can do um, their own monitoring of their blood sugar. Okay, so now we talked about how these diabetic patients, their insulin isn't allowing the sugar into the cells so they can't utilize glucose as energy. So now we have, we're having a, a glucose party in the bloodstream. Why is that problematic? A lot of times when I talk to my students, I'm like, okay, diabetes is a problem because you have high blood sugar, but is high, having high blood sugar going to kill you? Not necessarily. What's going to happen is patients are going to develop complications of diabetes, and that's where the real pl- problems um, lie is with diabetes complications. And so let's, talk, let's divide this into two different classes, I guess. This is how I like to think about it. So there are macrovascular complications and microvascular complications. Macro, big, big body systems. What are the problems? What are the big problems? Microvascular, you know, problems in our smaller organ systems, but still problems that can cause major, major health issues. So first, macrovascular complications. We think heart. We think cardiovascular system. We think, when we think cardiovascular complications, heart attack and stroke. And yes, um, you know, if a patient has constant high blood sugar, they have uncontrolled diabetes, that can lead to a heart attack or a stroke. A heart attack, stop of blow to the blood flow to the heart, not good. Stroke, stop of blood flow to the brain, not good. Not good. Um, And so here's some more statistics for you because why not? Um, At least 68% of people over the age of 65 with diabetes die from some form of heart-related issue and 16% die of stroke. Okay, that that's a problem. That's almost all of them. I can't do math right now. What's 68 plus 16? 78. 84% of people who have diabetes pa- pass away because of a heart attack or a stroke. And your diabetes is contributing to that. So big reason to know if you have diabetes and to help um, help yourself and take control of your diabetes. You want to prevent from these heart attacks and strokes from happening, right? Um, and adults with diabetes are two to four times more likely to die from heart disease than adults without diabetes. So come on now, come on. Aren't we, don't we want to control our diabetes so we can be around longer to see, you know, 
who our other future presidents are going to be. Is Kanye going to be president? I don't know. Is Harry Styles going to be president? Can he be president? No, he can't be president, but I would vote for him for president. So time, I'm crazy. Okay. So again, that high blood sugar damages all those blood vessels over time, leading to heart attack and stroke. Bummer. Also, another reason, um, we'll talk about this when we talk about the microvascular complications, but that constant high blood sugar also damages a lot of nerves and nerves are everywhere, including your brain and including your heart. So yes, you're damaging nerves everywhere, including the nerves to your heart. And so, um, you know, damaging those nerves to the, to your heart can cause, um, a heart attack or it could cause someone to have a heart attack and not feel that they're having a heart attack. Not cute. Not a good look. If you're having a heart attack, you probably want to know so you can seek medical attention. All right, so some of those microvascular complications. We'll start off with the nerves again. We just talked about the nerves of the heart. Um, I don't know if anyone has heard of peripheral neuropathy. So peripheral, far away. So um, far away, think fingers and toes. Um, so neuropathy is problems with the nerves and nerve transmission. So people with peripheral neuropathy, problems with the nerves and nerve transmission far away from their heart and their fingers and their toes means that people are losing the feeling in their fingers and their toes. And that's a problem. You kind of need to feel your feet when you're walking. Um, I think that that could help. Um, and so it usually occurs in your toes first because your toes are the furthest away from your heart. Um, and so you do develop some problems feeling those toes. Why is that a problem? I don't care that my foot is numb, Liz. Well, if you can't feel your toes, how often do people like get cuts and scrapes on their feet? Pretty often, especially me. I don't love to wear shoes. I love to walk outside barefoot. Um, and so if you get a cut or a scrape on your foot and you have peripheral neuropathy, you don't feel that cut or that scrape, problems can happen. Those little cuts that, you know, we would usually, you know, if you don't have peripheral neuropathy, you would feel, you would put some, um, you'd clean it out with either water and soap or put some neosporin on that thing, make sure that it doesn't get infected, make sure that it's covered and healed. Um, that cut is being exposed to everything. And so a lot of patients develop diabetic foot infections because they don't feel the cut or the scrape. And then that cut or that scrape on their foot gets infected. And this is what in um, a lot of instances, like I know that people are like, I'm diabetic. I don't want to lose my toes. Well, if you take care of your diabetes and you prevent yourself from getting peripheral neuropathy, you get to keep your fingers and your toes. Um, those scrapes, those diabetic foot infections that patients get, that's what often leads to amputations. So, cute, right? Am I scaring, am I scaring you? And then a second microvascular complication that we're worried about is nephropathy. Neph, kidney. So, um... Constant high blood sugar can actually do direct damage to your kidneys and the vessels that are supplying um, blood to your kidneys. And we need our kidneys to work. These are our filters. They filter all that bad crap out of our body. So um, when a patient has uncontrolled diabetes, they have that constant high blood sugar, um, it can cause direct damage to those kidneys. And so, you know, um, a lot of patients, late, maybe later in life, um, towards end of life, they might have to be on diabetes 
dialysis because of their um, because of their diabetes, and that's because they had poor control throughout their lifetime, and it caused damage to their kidneys directly. And the third and final microvascular complication that I do want to mention is diabetic retinopathy. So damage to the retina. What does your retina do? Your retina, that little thing in the back of your eye, that helps you see. So if your blood sugar is high all of the time, again, we talked about nerve damage with peripheral neuropathy and and potential heart attack. Um, That sugar is also damaging the nerves of your eyes. So what's going to happen? First, you're going to get blurry vision, and then eventually that could lead to blindness. So my overall I just want to, I, I mean, it's important to know all of these things that can occur if a patient has uncontrolled diabetes so that if you know that you or somebody that you love has diabetes, you know, it, it, it is a big deal. But peop, if you take care of yourself, you can prevent all of these things from happening. If you control your diabetes, take your medications, adhere to a healthy lifestyle, we can prevent all of these macrovascular and microvascular complications from happening. Um, But it's important to know that they do exist, and it's important to know why diabetes is such a big deal, because all of these things can potentially happen. So what are, what are the steps in preventing my, in preventing someone from getting diabetes or what can somebody do um, right away to help themselves if they are diagnosed with diabetes? I like to call this big group of modifications, lifestyle modifications. I like to call it. That's what everyone calls it. I didn't come up with it. I'm not creative. I'm not cool. Okay. Um, but, you know, lifestyle modifications can help a lot of patients who are normal, pre-diabetic, or diabetic. And we like to counsel all of our patients who are diabetics and pre-diabetics to um, attempt these lifestyle modifications no matter if they've been a diabetic for one week, a year, or 50 years. Um, It's important for them to, um, you know, utilize these modifications to help them um, prevent all those complications from happening. So number one is exercise. So guidelines recommend moderate exercise for 30 minutes five times a week. And so that increases your cardiovascular fitness. So this will help um, in a a plethora of ways. So um, not only is it strengthening your cardiovascular system, but also this can help um, with insulin resistance. And exercise can help reduce the risk of insulin resistance. So we love exercise. 30 minutes, five times a week. And we say moderate exercises, you're kind of out of breath. So it's not like you're huffing and puffing, um, but it's not like a leisurely walk with a dog like Alan who stops every three seconds to smell every single leaf. Yes, I'm talking about you. Don't look at me like that. Um, But again, 30 minutes, five times a week. And then healthier eating will help too. So um, when we talk about healthy eating for diabetics, We're talking about balance, so a balance of whole grains, fruits, vegetables, and proteins. Um, And one big thing that I do want to tell you is that a low—if you're diagnosed as a diabetic, that does not mean that you don't get to eat carbs. That means that you know you should have better control over how many carbs you eat. But low carb diets are not necessary for every single patient who is diabetic. 
who is diabetic and low carb diets do not prevent diabetes. So don't be like, oh, I practice keto. So there's no way I'm going to be diabetic. No, not true. That's not true. Um, And actually the keto diet can be dangerous for a lot of diabetic patients, but you know, that's another topic for another day. Um, And so it's really important for all diabetic patients to, um, It's really important for all diabetic patients to talk to their providers about what the most appropriate um, diet is for for themselves. And, you know, with exercise and diet, weight loss is always good for anyone who's overweight and wants to prevent diabetes. I can't talk. I'm a chubby girl myself. But um, weight loss is always good for anyone who's overweight because it can help with insulin resistance and um, it can help with preserve your it can help i'm just like going crazy right now um but it can help preserve that beta cell function and it can help your body um you know maintain that constant release of insulin so always a good idea and again i'm gonna talk about it all the time with any health topic that we talk about smoking is bad smoking cigarettes is bad um and smoking actually can increase um cardiovascular risk and it is a direct factor uh direct risk factor for diabetes so smoking does increase the risk of someone having diabetes in their lifetime so i'm not here to give any specific medical advice talk to your doctor with with any with any concerns that you potentially have um but you know, this is this is an important thing to talk about for sure. And that's where I'm going to leave off for now. Um, if you think we should do an additional follow-up episode on, you know, diabetic medications or any other, um, anything other than what I talked about. I mean, there's so much I could talk about with diabetes. I could go for days and days. I think that this is already a really long episode, but I can't tell because my... MacBook is recording this in bars and not in seconds. I don't know why I did that, but I did. Um, So anyways, um, if you have any additional topics at all, doesn't have to pertain to diabetes or healthcare or anything like that, um, please send me a a message on Instagram at Clumsy and Confused Podcast or shoot me an email at clumsyandconfusedpodcast at gmail.com. I am up for any suggestions. I love suggestions. And if anyone wants to be a guest... I would love to have you. Alan is my guest for now. I have a couple of guests lined up for the near future, but um, always welcome to having anyone and everyone spread their knowledge on the podcast. So did you learn something new today? I sure hope so. See you next time, friends. (laughs) 